let me ask you something. How do you like? How do you perceive me, Liz? How much time do you have? Well, uh, I mean, technically, all the time in the world. This is my job. <laughs> what do you mean? How do I perceive you? Like when I talk, what do you think? Uh, I mean, I feel like this is a loaded question. Whoa, uh, I I didn't think it was a loaded question, but now that that sort of changes the tenor of things. <laughs> I just mean, I don't, what are you getting at? What do you mean? What do you, do, that's too open-ended. When I talk, what do you think? I don't, do I don't you know. Think I, do like, you think I'm, well, this is, oh God, I do Just ask me. Do you think I'm stupid? No. Okay. Well, I've got really bad news for you. <laughs> I have 80 IQ. <laughs> is that good or not? I never know. I don't any, know. I don't so know what to me, IQ numbers are. 80 is a are. super high number. Right? Mm. Like, if someone told you that at 80 is something, you would say that's a lot. What is the scale? It's, like, incomprehensible. It's, like, Fahrenheit to Celsius. It, IQ should just be 0 to 100. Well, I was actually... 100 see, I, is I actually genius. Zero is stupid. Yeah, baby. A baby, and it gets bigger as you get older, too. Like, it <laughs> should, you should get one a year. Yeah. No, so, I, also, if you have an IQ when you're... Okay, so you're 25, and your IQ mm-hmm. should be about 25. If you're really smart, it should be, like... 35, 45. Mm-hmm. You're really, Wise really beyond smart. your years. Exactly. Maybe you're an old soul. Maybe you're a 75 at, an, at a young age. That oh, makes yeah. sense I, to me. What I is this like 80 to 145? No one knows Bullsh- what that means. Who's 145? No, I'm talking about the IQ range. I know, but like who is that? Like who has that? Why would you have? What's the point of that? Me, I have that. You have that? Well, okay. Wow. Well, that makes sense. Have I ever told um, you about my group Mensa? Liz. Would what? you snitch on me? No, never. Of course not. Oh my god! Are so you when people draw in their breath like that, instead of just being no, because I feel like we could have just had a that was like a three second beat. You could have. Do you know what it was? Is that I had tabbed over into my email because I saw I had an email from so the FBI. <laughs> You're tapping over during the introduction, Liz. Oh my god, as if you never tab over. I see I your eyes. I don't tab over. I can show you. I can't show you the tabs because it's coming out. I'll tell you right now. I have on my tabs open, no, I have you- an ebook copy to purchase of American Communism and Crisis. And then, okay, the other one's also my email. But that was the email to give to our noble and not mean to me producer so he could we could figure this all this out. No, this wasn't me. I'm not doing. If you're tapping on the company, uh, company hour, the company dime. Then I don't know. I, we're gonna have to. Well, I'm taking this to the boss. Uh, first of all, I'm the boss. Second of all, uh, welcome to Tronon. Hello. Is my name is Liz. My name's my name's Brace, but not if she's the boss. Because if she is, <laughs> then my bad. Uh, we're joined by our producer, Young Chomsky. He's gonna nod or shake his head. You can shake your head if it's no. He's just not okay. He's nodding now. Okay, I'm really sorry, Liz. Please, I was just. Kidding. I was just horsing around with you. All right. Well, good. We have a hell of an episode in front of us today. We do. We do. Um, this was a fun one mm-hmm. and a topic that I think 
we, I mean, we kind of get into it in the interview, but a, a time period that is, I think, greatly misunderstood in the popular imagination. Absolutely. Uh, particularly when it comes to the activities of the Communist Party and the government. Absolutely. I, I think that this is, this is, especially in times like these when, when, I mean, we touch on this a lot uh, in certain points in the interview, in times like these when there is this sort of this sense and this reality in some, in some sense of, of heightened repression of people for, for whatever reason, it's, it's really good to like not view this as like an aberration or something that's like, you know, crazy that's happening for the first time or whatever, but to actually look at this through the lens of history, which a lot of people really do not like doing, which, which bothers me to no small extent. Um, but yeah, we have with us a renowned scholar, which is always good to have. Uh, and uh, you want to, uh, well, you want to hit, you want to hit play, baby? Yeah, let's get into it. Root hog and I, friend Root hog and I, gotta get to Boston, Root hog and I. Psycho and Vanzetti die at sundown tonight, so I've gotta get to Boston, Root hog and I. Train wheel can roll, me cushions can ride, ships on the... Well, we have with us here today, ladies and gentlemen, Aaron Leonard, an author and historian who's written a couple books in the past, Heavy Radicals, about Maoist repression. Unfortunately, not about Maoists doing the repression, about Maoists being repressed and uh, in, in the USA. And Threat of the First Magnitude, about informants. No, it is not a biography of yours truly. Uh, it is about informants who've gotten to the highest levels of organizations in the past. And he's out now with uh, The Folk Singers in the Bureau, a book about, well, two of my greatest passions, folk music and the FBI. Uh, Aaron, how you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks no. for coming. Yeah, very, very excited. Um, big, uh, big time folk fan. And I think maybe for some of our, uh, let's say, more hip-hop style listeners. Uh, when we talk about folk music, who are we talking about? Like in, in, in this book in particular. Yeah, I mean, uh, the folk music more generally is uh, academics like to debate what it is, where it comes from. Uh, I'm not a musicologist, so I, I don't, I'm not burdened by that. Uh, the people I'm particularly interested, well, okay, so how did this book come about? I finished two books that focused more on Maoism in the 60s and 70s, and I thought I was going to write about the FBI and the musicians of the 60s, right? Jefferson mm -hmm. Airplane, MC5. I couldn't get the files. Actually, since then, I've gotten more files, but that's for another time. Um, but in the course of researching this, I read this book by uh, Sean Wallens, uh, Bob Dylan's America. And he talked about Woody Guthrie. You know, I kind of knew Woody Guthrie, this land is your land, I ain't got no home. I didn't know his political background. I knew he was kind of left and progressive, man of the people. But Wilentz basically alluded to the fact that he was very close to the Communist Party. So I sent off for Guthrie's FBI file, and sure enough, you know, they had it. Um, and I started reading it, and it was very interesting. And then it occurred to me, well, if Woody had a file, Pete Seeger, well, I knew he had a file, but I you know, mm -hmm. never actually looked at it. So I looked at it. And then there were other people like Alan Lomax, who was this song collector, ethnomusicologist. I got his file. Then I got Sis Cunningham, this uh, out of Oklahoma, who was part of this group, the Almanac Singers, 
She started Broadside Magazine that introduced the world to Bob Dylan's song. I got her file. And it quickly became apparent that everybody who was in the folk movement of the 40s and 50s who had any kind of relationship to the Communist Party, including Burl Ives, Sam the Snowman from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, mm -hmm. they had an FBI file. So I said, well, you know, there's a book here. Um, and I can understand it. And at the same time, I had, I had started to be interested in, in how the Communist Party was basically suppressed in the period 47 to 56. So there you go. Yeah, I think there's sort of two um, converging kind of timelines here in the book. I mean, that, that's certainly what I noticed, is, is that you, you kind of go through the history of the Communist Party from maybe the late 30s to the, to the, to the 50s, and then you also uh, concurrently was, was the folk music movement. Which they sort of both like really rose up. I mean, specifically this brand of folk music. Uh, they 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 both sort of like came into prominence and and were were very popular around the same time. And then sort of would both, let's say, drained in popularity. I mean, of course, folk music did continue, but mostly with different artists in the fifties and sixties. Uh, and and it's really interesting to see sort of the interplay between the two because I grew up too knowing that like you know Pete Seeger's like this lefty you know he played at Barack Obama's inauguration man um, you know he's a big progressive and 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 like you said you know with with this land is 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 your land uh, that kind of stuff but it 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 becomes apparent especially reading this I did not know like how exactly involved they were I knew that like I just read a book about. Uh, we were talking about earlier about a, a communist summer camp. They talked about Pete Seeger coming up there with Paul Robeson, but I didn't know that like S Seeger played that that famous Peak Skills concert with, with yeah. Robeson or anything like that. And so that's something I was really interested in, and in, in, is in that actual direct relationship between uh, between these singers and the party. It wasn't just like purely sort of a fellow traveler type type relationship, but they actually had some pretty close contacts with, with especially the New York party. Yeah, I, um, I kind of have, you know, to read the literature, it's like nobody was ever in the Communist Party. Mm -hmm. It's like everybody's falsely accused or said to have been, blah, 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 blah. But the re and, you know, the level of anti-communism in the United States is such that, you know, one does not acknowledge having been in the Communist Party, except in, you know, certain specific exceptional instances. The reality is, is if you were a radical in the 30s and 40s, uh, there was high unemployment, people were being evicted, Jim Crow was rampant, every day you could pick up the paper and read about lynching, and the Communist Party was cool. If you mm -hmm. were radical, and you were very radical, it was an attraction, and some of the best people uh, of their generations were attracted to that. I mean, I, I'm very, you know, I think I'm very uh, level-headed in my assessment of the Communist Party as far mm -hmm. as being critical and such. But I, I think if I were around in 39, that's where I would have went. I mean, there was this uh, model in the Soviet Union that appeared uh, to have solved some of these problems. I mean, as it turned out, it wasn't really true. But, I mean, it's something we don't have today. Nobody can point to this country or that country is where we want to get to. But back then you did, and it, it had a powerful effect. So I, I wanted to try to say, you know, look, the McCarthy era is done. We can talk about this now. I mean, I don't blame Alan Lomax or, Sis, or Gordon Friesen, Sis Cunningham's husband, for 
downplaying and trying to say they weren't in the party. It meant going to prison. But those times are over, so we can talk about it as, as it actually was. And Seeger was at peak skill, Fred Hellerman, uh, Ronnie Gilbert, they were all in this group, the Weavers, Lee Hayes, they were all at mm -hmm. peak skill. Woody Guthrie was at peak skill in a car, they were breaking the windows, and he, he was yelling out, you know, hey, you missed the window back here. And then he <laughs> sang, uh, takes a worried man to sing a worried song, and it tells you something about Woody's... Uh, disposition. They were all there because they were all in this milieu uh, of the Communist Party. Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, I, I would say, I think your book goes even further and gets to a really interesting point, which says that actually this art would not have been produced if it weren't for the party. That the party is was kind of a vehicle, not just for bringing, I mean, for literally, quite literally putting all of these people in the same room, right? Like that wouldn't have existed. But also, I think the way you put it is that it gave them, it gave the art a kind of breathing room that it wouldn't have had with all of these people isolated from each other, you know, even outside of the, the politics that were driving them. And I think that's a really interesting point when we think about kind of the, kind of the co-production of art and, and how it crosses over, you know, between individuals. And it's something that, um, I, I don't know, I think like, isn't usually remarked on when we talk about kind of party structures and what and and the kind of um, you know political or, or um, artistic product that they that they end up producing that these kind of structures end up producing. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. It's 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 an important point, and I'm not sure I have the totality of. But but take take the example. I think I I have a uh, kind of a provocative chapter opening where I say. You know, imagine you're sitting in some cafe in the village, you know, in 1943, and you say, well, you know, in 10 years, you know, the number one hit is going to be Goodnight, Irene. Irene, goodnight. Irene, goodnight. Goodnight, Irene, and goodnight, You know, which is brought forward by a former chain gang member in Louisiana named Huddy Ledbetter. You know, Huddy Ledbetter is uh, Leadbelly. Uh, Leadbelly yeah. is, uh, you know, he did Goodnight Irene, Rock Island Line, Midnight Special. Huddy Ledbetter is uh, somebody George Harrison said, you know, without Leadbelly, there would have been no Lonnie Donegan doing mm -hmm. Rock Island Line. I got sheep, I got cows, I got horses, I got pigs, I got all livestock, I got all livestock, I got all. Without no Rock Island line, there would be no Beatles, which is pretty intense. You know, no Woody Guthrie, no Bob Dylan. Right. So there's continuity. But, but how does, you know, Jim Crow America have, you know, Jewish intellectuals, um, you know, Harvard dropouts and former chain gang members and, um, uh, you know, Josh White, who came out of a religious South Carolina, how do you get all those people in the same room, let alone making the same music? This society did not want that. You know, and in many ways, it still resists, you know, that kind of stuff. So there was this organization that could, could do that. And it's, you know, it's troubling because the organization was so fraught. You know, right. boy, yeah. boy, if it was cool, you know, if it, it didn't have all these crazy problems, but 
but it's like it was able to take things further because of the cool part of it, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What What in particular, like, do you think it was? I mean, you say it's cool, like, which I fully agree with. I mean, I think that the, if you were a, a happening person in the 1930s and you didn't belong to the Communist Party, you were probably locked in prison or in a mental institution. But uh, which many of these people ended up being locked in one or the other anyway. So perhaps not the greatest point. Um, but, but what do you think it was that like sort of drove these people, not only to the party, but to like create these things alongside the party? I mean, this, this felt like, and it's cause it's not just in music. It was in, it was in art and it was in writing and all this stuff too. I mean, you know, famously you had Hemingway and sort of that, like, uh, certainly not as connected to the party as, as, as the people mentioned in this book, but you had, had this sort of whole generation of writers who, if not members of the party, but most of them weren't, uh, were very like worked sort of closely alongside either its front organizations or especially in relation to Spain, you know, sort of like red aid organizations for Spain. What do you think it was that like drove all of these different people and, you know, really great, like seminal American artists to, to work for this, these, these ideals and stuff, because we still have like pain and suffering and hunger and all this stuff, but there isn't this same sort of sense of like social duty in, in onward progress. Yeah, it's, uh, I think it goes back to what I said earlier, is it, it seemed like there was a solution. Mm-hmm, and I, yeah. I guess that's part of the problem of living in the current world. I mean, I know for myself, I'm an old radical leftist who's uh, kind of come to the point of not quite figuring out how one would create a better world. I know mm-hmm. it's needed. I mean, I, I mean, the best I can come up with is you know, we all really need to push as far as we can toward whatever, and hopefully you know, we'll <laughs> be able to look over the horizon and see what see what's needed. But I, I think yeah. they saw over the horizon. I think they were mistaken, but hey, um, that's life. You know, uh, I think Mao once said to W.E. Du Bois, um, this famous quote, he said, oh, oh, you know, I've made so many mistakes. And Mao said, well, you never made this mistake of giving up, right? So... I, I think that's where we are. We we can't give up, but what the answer are elusive. But and then the other thing is because uh, as you were speaking, you were making me think. You know, artists are different. I mean, mm-hmm. I didn't used to think this. I had this whole Marxist thing about ah, oh, we're all blah blah blah. We can yeah, fundamentally yeah, yeah. be the same. Paintbrush but, uh, workers. Yeah, right, right, artists. Right. <laughs> artists look at the world different. I have an artist friend. I'll be walking along, and I'll be two blocks ahead, and they'll be staring at a flower. Mm-hmm. You know. Because they're seeing something I don't see. And uh, at their best, they see into the future. Um, I think these folks discovering this folk music felt they had discovered something. And they certainly Mm -hmm. had. I mean, they discovered humanity's uh, legacy of passing these wonderful songs and fine-tuning them and, you know, smoothing them and and then passing them on. And a lot of them are still with us. Um, You know, it would be a good discussion to have what are the roots that exist now but mm-hmm. uh, I think they they thought I mean, there's a quote from Sis Cunningham she went to this I think it's the uh, this school in uh, Mena Arkansas when she was in her early 20s and she was reading Das Kapital and the sense of community at the school was such she felt like oh there's a whole new world that yeah. I was being introduced to which you know that's cool uh, but it's got to be real otherwise it's just religion right 
Yeah, or or you know, I mean, we saw people intentionally try to create that whole new world on a small scale in the '60s and '70s, and really today, but just not in such like a vulgar commune form or whatever. Yeah, I think too, like um, you know, just to stress this point to our listeners who you know haven't read the book, that we're not just talking about artists who are just making art on their own. I mean, it did have you know explicit political aims as well. Um, which is a big part of the story, too. Yeah, I mean, I was, uh, I just had a class today, and I played this Woody Guthrie song. I forget the name of the, the Russian sniper woman, but Woody oh, wrote uh, this. Pavlichenko. Yeah, he wrote a song, you know, Fell by Your Gun, 300 mm-hmm. Nazis Fell by Your Gun. <laughs> fell by your gun, fell by your gun, 300 Nazis fell by your gun. I mean, some of this stuff is kind of awful. That song isn't yes. all that awful, but <laughs> some of it is is like real agitprop. But, you know, all of this, the consequences were uh, FBI attention. You know, the FBI in, mm-hmm. right. in 1939 was a few hundred people. You know, the U.S., you know, coming out of World War II was the most powerful country in the world, and the FBI had thousands of agents. I mean, it's in keeping with an empire, um, that you need a political police, and, and J. Edgar Hoover stepped up. Um, he stepped up uh, not on his own, but FDR gave the FBI incredible authority, and that, that's part of the story, too. Um, you know, the Communist Party, did, they do these weird gyrations. Oh, okay. Initially, they support uh, this non-aggression pact between Germany and the Soviet Union because it was in the Soviet Union's interest to not have war with Germany. Uh, when that fell apart, when Germany invaded the Soviet Union, the USSR obviously changed its position and the Communist Party changed its position as well. So they went from being marginalized and repressed uh, from like 39 to 41 to being on the same side and very much accepted. Um, so the folk singer, I mean, there's a, there was this group, the Almanac Singers in 1941, one who did a lot of anti-war music in keeping with the party's line. And there's an article in the Atlantic saying, you know, songs like these ought to be subject to the Selective Service Act. These people ought to be in prison, <laughs> in other words, yeah. for saying, you know, conscription, mandatory conscription is bad and stuff. So the repression goes, you know, it's there's a dialectic between the repression and the music. You know, to the degree the music is stepping out and challenging the status quo. And, and that's actually still true. You know, go ahead and write a certain kind of song. See how far you get. Well, you, know? you mentioned the Dixie Chicks uh, in, in the book as well. And, like, I think that's a perfect example. I mean, look what happened to them. Yeah, exactly. The Dixie Chicks uh, had the audacity to question the Second Iraq War, uh, and they were taken off the radio, all of country radio. And, you know, and they, you know, they never recovered fully. I mean, they still have a career mm-hmm. because there's a huge audience for them, but a huge swath of the public square um, was taken away from them. And then I give the example more recently of, of Beyonce, you know, having the audacity to conjure up the image of the Black Panthers at the Super Bowl. You know, she's just, you know, you know mercilessly attacked on Fox News and the right-wing media for that. Um, you know, if you push against the limits, there's going to be consequences, and it's always been true. You know, mm-hmm. the best music generally, 
you know, isn't embraced. It's resisted, if anything, uh, which means, you know, I guess it means you got to kind of support your local artists, right? I mean, they, <laughs> they can't do it all by themselves, can they? Well, you must not have heard much of the artists around San Francisco these days, brother. I'm just kidding. <laughs> now, there's, there's some all right rock and rollers here. Um, you, you talk about, you, you mentioned there the, 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 the sort of flip-flopping of the party on the issue of the war. And, and, and with that, the, the sort of singers that went with it. And I always think it's so fascinating whenever I read accounts of, of the, the Communist Party uh, uh, United States in the 30s going into the 1940s, how all of these people really just joined the hell out of the U.S. government in their war effort. I mean, we, 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 got, we got a bunch of these folky guys uh, getting, into, uh, getting into the Office of War Information, I believe it was. Uh, Seeger joins the Merchant Marines, which as a, as a, uh, as a technically licensed Merchant Marine myself, felt very edifying to read. Uh, and, you know, or not Seeger, excuse me, Guthrie. And we had Seeger, I believe, joining the Army? I can't remember. Exactly yeah, he was which. a private in the Army. Yeah, and, uh, and it, it was just so like, I mean, there was, this, there was this, this tremendous push from these guys. And then they wrote these really like, I wouldn't necessarily call all the songs semi-patriotic songs, but certainly songs extremely... Um, behind the war effort, essentially, and and certainly quite a lot of kind of silly like anti-Hitler songs, which Lead Belly, I believe, got into that racket as well. I'm not familiar with what Lead Belly did on that, but I know that the Communist Party was. I think they literally said, "We're all in yeah. for national unity," and including they did this pretty despicable thing where uh, these Trotskyists were put on trial for the Smith Act. Uh, Trotskyists, uh, I think they're in Minnesota. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. The Smith Act said you can't teach the desirability of the overthrow of the government. It wasn't like you couldn't, it wasn't like they were charged with trying to overthrow the government. They were just tried for teaching the Communist Manifesto and saying, mm -hmm. well, that's a, that's a good book. Um, they were convicted and some went to prison. The Communist Party just kind of said, well, too bad, they're trots. Yeah. And then, you know, just a few years later, the Communist Party was subject to the same thing. But it was emblematic of this totally uh, behind the U.S. patriotic anything to defeat Nazism because it was in the interest of the Soviet Union to do so. Um, and it's, you know, the irony is so the Communist Party got to be very large. I believe they, they got up right. to 80,000 members. They got accepted. I think I, I have in the book a quote where they stopped Cisco Houston for a man of the street interview for the Daily News. And he talks about how great it is the Soviet Union fighting Hitler and how they were instrumental in winning the war. I mean, what's striking is he felt he could say that to an on-the-street reporter uh, circa 1944, 1945, um, because their position was synonymous with FDRs. They were not outside. Uh, but within a year, they were absolutely on the outside, which uh, mm. shows you uh, shows you how far sycophancy will get you. You mm. know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the ramp up, you know, with FDR and Hoover on cracking down on the on the party, and like that's, I mean, a significant part of the book, we should say, is detailing uh, the efforts of the FBI uh, and what becomes the FBI. Uh, in infiltrating and and suppressing the Communist Party and basically trying to, I mean, I think, I hope, but, you know, I don't mean to overstate or overreach, but um, 
you know, I think kind of trying to shade the narrative that many have written about, about why the Communist Party in the United States kind of fell apart. And, and, you know, interweaving this narrative about the folk singers as a way to demonstrate the uh, capacity of the Bureau in, and its kind of myriad of ways of infiltrating and suppressing party members. Yeah, you know, it's a, as you were speaking, I realized it's like, this, this has ramifications on a number of levels. First mm-hmm. off, uh, the fact that they're close to the party means a lot of them are on the security index, which means if the U.S. goes to war with the Soviet Union, they're probably going to be put in detention camps. Yes. Um, concentration camps, if, if you will. Uh, if you're on this list, the FBI is making sure they know where you live every six months. So there's this ongoing surveillance. People talk about FBI surveillance, but... They don't quite understand why it's happening. I mean, the FBI is either approaching you or your neighbors to find out where you live, or they're trying to flip you. They're trying mm-hmm. to feel out if you'll talk to them and maybe work as, a, as an asset for them. Uh, or, you know, if you're really a, a high-profile target, they will be tapping your phone and putting a video camera, you know, in your, in your bedroom or whatever. Uh, but there, there's actually a methodology. It's not just this free, vague, yeah. constant surveillance. Uh, but the thing with communism is coming out of World War II is, you know, think about the United States. It's like it's one World War II. It's the most powerful country in the world. It represents Western capitalism. But then the Soviet Union's also won World War II. They lost yep. 20 million people. The United States lost 400,000. And then in 1949, you know, Mao leads uh, people in revolution in China, and suddenly mm-hmm. one third of the world is under some kind of communism. You know, and this is where defeating communism becomes a high priority. I mean, it's one thing to attack it in 1940 when it's got this anti war position, it's another thing to attack it in 1947 where it's actually an existential threat. You know, is Italy going to be communist? Is France going to be communist? Is Greece going to be a communist? You know, this is, and all this is kind of forgotten now by many who look back at what the FBI was doing and think, well, it was just Hoover being paranoid. Well, he yep. was actually carrying out the dictates of a, of a larger political apparatus that, yeah. you know, wanted to keep its, its power. Um, and that's where it got real heavy. I mean, the folk singers, by and large, didn't go to prison. Mm-hmm. But they were constrained on how they could work. But they always had this thing over them that they didn't even know about. You know, the turn, a turn in a headline would have meant, you know, being rounded up and put away. And then, of course, you know, with the party leaders themselves, they actually were put away. Uh, but then, you know, that, that list, that security index stretches into the 60s. Um, and not only in the Communist Party, but people like uh, James Foreman, Kwame Touré, Stokely Carmichael, mm-hmm. you know, all these folks. I mean, the FBI is learning year in and year out, and including they get informants in place, you know, through the 50s that are operating in the 60s. So I mean, it was part of my interest, too, because I focused a lot on the 60s. I discovered some of these informants, this guy Morris Childs in the Communist Party, but then I see his legacy goes back to like 1952. So it's a uh, Hmm. Kind of putting this big puzzle together. Yeah. I mean, it's a good detective story, but it's also more than that, isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I think too, like uh, you said something just now about, you know, people don't really have a real conception of how, let's say, robust the FBI programs were. And I mean, in the book, the, the amount of information the FBI had on even just the internal dynamics of the party and like basically where possible choke points were or mm. what like possible um, arguments they could exploit or just monitoring so many um, internal debates is really, um, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say impressive, but it is almost, you know, I mean. It certainly it, made an impression on me. Yeah, yeah it, I mean. You know, it gives you pause. Um, if I can jump in, it's uh, yeah, because there's this this example. So, the Communist Party uh, in their you know they launched this white chauvinism campaign around yes. 1949. Yeah. And Famous to, white chauvinism campaign. Yeah, yes. they're trying to root out racism in the party, which you know probably right. There was probably, I mean, look, I'm sure people had some raw, ignorant thinking back then. And there was probably some of that in the party, but I don't think the party was like the the big site um, and home of white chauvinism in U.S. society. Yeah. Thank you very much. Go to fucking Mississippi. Excuse me, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but they try to root it out, so they have this internal purge, and, you know, hundreds of people are, are uh, kicked out. You know, some of the offenses are you, for serving a black, comrade a, a cup of coffee with a chipped cup it was you know perceived racism and stuff i mean I, there's a whole thing for me to get into this about some of the people they alienated but you know for the sake of this example in 1962 the fbi basically drawing on the, the old white chauvinism campaign circulated surreptitiously documents to the california party accusing certain comrades of white chauvinism and they actually lost an entire branch in Compton as a result. I mean, the FBI Jesus. did this as part of its counterintelligence operation. So they, they're monitoring the internal politics and they're using it against people, which it just says to me, you know, you, you better have your internal house in order and <laughs> you know, not be doing a bunch of stuff that, you know, you probably don't need to be doing that way. You know, there's well, other ways of addressing these things, you know. Aaron, I, I first read about the white chauvinism campaign, like, I think five, I've heard about it before, but like really read about it about five years ago uh, in that book, The Romance of American Communism, which, which you know, also details an, an instance where someone served watermelon to a dinner party and that was taken as like a, a sort of a racial slight, which got to say that that's that's a that's a very uh that's takes a lot of setting up for that. I feel like you could have just been racist regularly. I don't know. But um it 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 I, in the, your description here, I mean, when I read that I was like, well, that is absurd. But in the intervening years since I read that in the past 5 years, uh it 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 just struck me how like how many of these tactics are just like it's repeated again and again and again. I mean, it, even in in one part of your book you talk about uh uh, a a woman in New York in this like you know uh, mixed race like folk you know these people who are getting ready to to put on this concert one of them is like well I don't think the Weavers should play because they're essentially accused he accuses them of doing cultural appropriation of 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 black music and and this is this is you know to put it in perspective this is when the party is basically at, at, at the, uh, nearing the height of its of repression towards it. Uh, and, and it strikes me as sort of like very similar to a lot of the, the sort of squabbles you see today where things are very bad, but, but people sort of just focus on, on this, like 
I mean, these people aren't even Maoists, for God's sake. They're like, you know, democratic socialists or whatever, but they focus on this like internal rectification. It's this like spiritual purification where like, well, if I am able to like sort of root out all of my, you know, nasty, it's, uh, you know, instincts and thoughts or whatever like that, then I'll be able to be this sort of perfect political figure or at least I'll be happy. Yeah, I mean, I guess the metaphor is war. I mean, you don't Mm -hmm. want your army going into battle with one platoon fighting the other. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's essentially what these purges are like. But there's this, I I quote Pettus Perry, who was an African-American comrade in the Communist Party, and he gives this blustery 1950 speech, you know. I mean, if you ever read Stalin, Stalin has simple sentences with absolute Mm -hmm. declarations and Perry says, well, some comrades think now is not the time to fight white chauvinism. You know, we need everybody we can get. And uh, then Paris answers his question saying, well, yes, we do need everyone we can get, but we don't need white chauvinism. We need Marxism. Mm -hmm. Six months later, he's in prison, you know, for violating the Smith Act. You know, Uh now is not the time. You know, do you need to address white chauvinism? Should you tolerate it? I mean, I would argue no. You know, you shouldn't tolerate, but you should, you know, find the ways to, to, you know, you know, help people who are just being ignorant through it and people who are hostile. You know, you probably don't want to be hanging with those folks, but you don't have to. Pretty easy to exploit as snitches and spies anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, there's this guy, Harvey Matuso. He's this young guy. That's how you pronounce it? I, that's how I pronounce it. How My do you God, I've been it? calling him Harvey Matakow, but Batuso <laughs> sounds actually like her name. I was like, damn, this is, what is this guy, Hungarian or something? This oh is what God. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's actually a really, the, the Matuso story is really, I found it, I, I had no idea about it. And 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 I love reading about snitches. And yeah, so Harvey Matuso is a snitch. You know how he ended up, right? Well, first off, Harvey Matuso is a trip. You know, he would freelance as a clown. Mm. So there, that's a red flag for you right there. I mean, Liz, no do not listen thing. to him. Liz used to do that. Liz used to do that. Do not listen to him, Liz. Do not he only means for clowns, guys. You know, <laughs> uh, and he ended up later in life uh, converting to Mormonism. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that's so he, the real red flag. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but so Matuso gets out of the army. He starts working with the party. Hangs around people songs. He's uh, instrumental in a. Uh, literature distribution he wins a contest selling the most daily worker subscriptions and he wins an all-expense-paid trip to puerto rico right says the communist party has these gimmicks but uh i mean i'll be honest i wish parties today still had the convention so you know he's an up-and-comer and he's got a certain position of respect uh but it, it seems like the, the subscriptions probably is bullshit he might have paid for him himself um, but what happens is he's dating a woman in Harlem who works for the Amsterdam News, African-American woman, um, and he is caught up in the white chauvinism campaign because he has a day job of being a bill collector. So it said, look, you are uh, you know, oppressing black and Puerto Rican people by collecting bills. I mean... It's not a good job to have, and I don't recommend anybody get it, but mm-hmm. uh, this was what was used against Matuso, and it totally alienates him, you know, to the point where he approaches the FBI to become an informant, uh, which he does for a year. And then he's kicked out of the party because they become suspicious of him 
And he goes on to testify in front of Congress where he names Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, Lee Hayes, Ronnie Gilmer, Fred Hellerman, Brownie McGee, you know, everybody associated with the folk singers. And the minute your name goes on record in HUAC, uh, they're taking notes and following up. If they don't mm-hmm. have a file, it's going to be open and they're going to pursue you. And once a file is open, it's very, very rare for that file to close. Well, it certainly never disappears, which is why I have a book, you know, <laughs> files still exist. But so that's what Matuso does. He ends up, you know, because he's a very peculiar character, he ends up having a moment of clarity. He regrets what he does. He writes a book, you know, basically taking it all back. But, you know, look, some things in life you can't undo. You know, yeah. Matuso's legacy is he made life hell for Pete Seeger spent almost 10 years facing uh, prison because of Harvey Matuso. You know, so I, I don't, did do, find don't it interesting. do that, you know, don't do those yeah. kind of things. It's not good. No matter how mad you are, I think snitching is sort of like, it's, it's, it's one of the lowest things you can do. Yeah. And I've done a lot of low things, but that is, I mean, yeah, Christ, especially on people that have, they sent you to Puerto Rico for God's sake. Someone sends me to Puerto Rico, I'm in the party for life. I'll yeah. tell you that. Well, the thing uh, with Matuso snitching, I mean, just for me to be very specific, these yeah. people weren't doing anything wrong. You know, they mm-hmm. were living their lives and they were politically associated. So to, for her to, him to get up there and base, essentially brand them as some kind of criminals, that's actually the thing he shouldn't have done. So. You mentioned HUAC, and I just want to pause on that for one second, because one thing I didn't totally understand was the the tension you detail between Hoover and McCarthy, and basically, like, fighting over political turf and the turf wars that were happening over what had been, you know, a pretty, um, you know, expansive and long, you know, long-running FBI operation, and several, I mean, obviously, several operations infiltrating uh, groups and flipping uh, members, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And with McCarthy just kind of like busting through the door with all his fake lists, kind of like throwing all of that into chaos, it seems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, the short answer is politicians are the worst, aren't they? Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, he's, I mean, he just seizes on this issue and he makes a career for it. I, I mean, one of the things I, I hope people reading the book will walk away with is a better understanding that McCarthyism is a misnomer. We're mm-hmm. actually talking about a second Red Scare that starts Absolutely. in 1947, three years before McCarthy, and it goes on three years plus after McCarthy is thrown down. I mean, he was a mm-hmm. dangerous man. He was a powerful person. He could ruin your career. I, I believe he drove some people to suicide. Oh, he's also... I mean, oh. Roy Cohn involved in all this. Oh, uh, yeah, Roy like, Cohn was his aide, but Bobby Kennedy, right out of uh, law school, worked for Joe McCarthy, you know, huh. which, you know, helps you understand why when J. Edgar Hoover in 62 takes this dossier on Martin Luther King to Bobby Kennedy saying he's working with communists, that Bobby Kennedy signs off to wiretap Martin Luther King. Bobby Kennedy has gotten a pass 
uh, historically on that. Uh, I don't know what Kennedy's frame of mind was in 68. I mean, mm -hmm. it seems like he um, had shifted his view, but, you know, up until the Kennedy, the first Kennedy administration, he was an ardent cold warrior, as oh, was yeah. his brother. Right. Um, the only, John Kennedy is the only senator who did not vote to censure um, Joe McCarthy, he said he had a bad back. You know, I don't feel good. I can't vote. Uh, Classic. Incredible. Yeah. So, um, Belden method. But it's, you know, McCarthy is a figure, but there's a bigger thing going on. And, and yeah. it's the, the bigger political apparatus is, has a lot of unity about destroying this party. Oh, yeah. Um, because it's a pro Soviet party and Soviet Union is, is not welcome. Uh, in 50s United States. So something that I thought was, was, was really interesting in reading this too was, I mean, you do talk a lot about different people who resisted HUAC, who resisted, you know, their Smith Act trials and stuff like that. And then you talk about the people who either didn't resist but didn't quite snitch, who maybe went in and gave testimony but refused to name names. Uh, I believe Josh White was one of those people. And then you talk about people who did go in and actually did name names. And, yeah, and yeah. so, like, what kind of pressures were those people subjected? Like, how come some men broke and some men didn't? Because I don't think it all necessarily, I mean, at, at the end of the day, it does come down to, you know, to backbone and strength of character. But, like, you know, there's often ways to get at a man that 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 are almost guaranteed to get him. And so, what were some of the reasons uh, some of these characters actually did go and cooperate? Yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting story. I mean, the first thing uh, is nobody should be put in this position. These people mm -hmm. should not have been put in a position. You have to either go to HUAC and talk and name your friends and subject them to possible imprisonment, or you have to go to prison yourself. Yeah, uh, that is like a terrible position to put these people in. Okay, but saying that, I think what you just described is, you know, people do have to make decisions. Life forces you to make consequential decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, Millard Lampell, who ended up winning an Emmy in the 60s for um, uh, a t television show, he later did this series, Rich Man, Poor Man. You know, he mm -hmm. was in the Communist Party he testified in front of HUAC and said, I'm not naming names. You know, I can't do it. These people are my friends and colleagues, and it would be against everything I believe in. Now, as it was, he didn't go to prison. Um, so, you know, good, but he was willing to. Uh, Pete Seeger went in front of Congress and said, look, this is the United States. You claim to have, you know, freedom of speech, and I don't think you should be asking me these kind of questions. He didn't go to prison on a technicality. But he, he faced some real difficulties. Others uh, took the, you know, the uh, constitutional protection against self-incrimination. Mm -hmm. So as a result, they weren't held in contempt, but they were viewed as objectively as, as communists or people lying, you know, willing yeah. to lie about it. But then you have Burl Ives and Josh White. And Oscar Brand actually is the even more complicated character. But Burl Ives is uh, famous, you know, he's... His career is on the rise. Uh, he's soon going to be movies in movies. He wins an Academy Award in the 60s, you know, before Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. 
Um, he goes up there and he names names. He names three people, including his publicist. And of course, you know, then his own in, publicist. Yeah, I believe it's. Uh, I have the names in the book. I want to look back and yeah, get that particular yeah. detail straight. But it was these are people close to him. Yeah. Um, and he he does a funny kind of equivocation. He said, "Oh, I went to a few meetings, you know, mm. but I I don't like communism anymore. I mean, the few meetings is actually six or seven, and you actually had to have a card to get in." Um, it was Communist Political Association, probably an open meeting for musicians. But he had been around that orbit before then. Um, but as a result of him basically going and denouncing communism publicly, his career went forward. Uh, Josh White, you know, he is uh, African-American out of South Carolina. He's a great singer mm-hmm. um, and had a very good career. Uh, played at uh, Cafe Society and was probably going to be even bigger. You know, he gets called in. They don't make him name names. Um, And it's probably a peculiarity of the way Congress was dealing with uh, African-Americans. If you read the testimony, some of it is, it's really sickening how paternal it is. But yeah, he I think in some of the stuff you included, that I think they, they call him boy a few times and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How, what do the Negro boys think about what Paul yes. Robeson say? Yeah. Um, you know, these are men, you know, you know, some men who'd served in World War II. You know, he, try, he goes in there. They don't ask him to name names. He says, the communists, they use me as a sucker. You yep. know, I don't want to have anything to do with them, but I, I'm still for black rights. So he tries to, you know, offset one for the other. And I I make the point that Congress doesn't care about what he thinks about, you know, the freedom and equality of black people. They just want him to prostrate himself. Um, But his career is still kind of upended. And then I found this thing in his file that was really peculiar. After he testifies, he's still going to the FBI trying to get off of the off of their radar you know he's talking to them and he's basically as near as i can tell he's just telling stories and making it sound like something other than it is but there's this thing in his file this report saying that uh you know two nyp detectives had searched the house of a woman who committed suicide and they found josh white's name in it and they were blackmailing josh white who was making like you know Thousands of dollars, you know, yeah. at clubs in Las Vegas, and they were extorting him. I don't know a lot of the other details of this story, but it sounds like he's being blackmailed, um, mm. which said to me maybe he was being blackmailed before when he went went there. I mean, I don't have proof of that, but I do have proof that you know Josh White had this notion of blackmail in mind, which says something. And you know, I, I say some things about Burl Ives, which I, I won't go into here but there's more operating behind the scenes than just uh narrow careerism you know Mm -hmm. they're morally compromised but a lot of pressure is coming down on them and then oscar brand is a radio figure he was on the radio in new york for 60 years he had a folk show everybody in the world was on it and you know if you read oscar brand's new york times obituary says he was never called in front of huac and I actually discovered that's not true. You know, he was called, and he recalls himself in his 1962 biography that he talked to, to somebody that he kind of dodged a bullet. But he also, in the NYU Tamman Library, there's the files of this former, uh, this Red Channels, this booklet of uh, 
people who shouldn't be allowed to perform on, on radio and in film. And uh, they've got the background files and they've got Oscar Brand writing to them saying, get me off this list. I hate communism. Ah. So he negotiated. So, you know, Oscar Brand is like, fortunately, he didn't have to publicly go and name names. But, you know, his story is a little more complicated than uh, he characterized it as being blacklisted by the left and the right. But he stayed on the radio forever. And sure, that's good. I'm glad he stayed on the radio. But I don't think it's quite the way he says it played out. Well, I think just in a more generalized sense, like I, I, I really think that it's important that people today get an idea of just all the various techniques that, that the government and, and the FBI gets a lot of attention, of course. I mean, the book's called The Folk Seekers in the Bureau, but but you make you make very clear that this was all levels of government coming down on on the party and on, let's say, progressive minded people. And and these techniques that they use, I mean, what you've just described here in this interview, you know, blackmail, uh, threats of blacklisting, uh, you know, surveillance, and and I know just from uh, I used to sort of study the the post war kind of careers of of uh, Lincoln uh, Lincoln Battalion veterans. I mean, they would go to their work and they would ask their bosses, you know, if, is this person a communist? Which obviously give the boss an idea to fire them. Um, I mean, the one thing that we stress a lot in the show is that that these techniques don't happen in a vacuum, right? Like, like they didn't perfect these, uh, you know, the, these methods of surveillance totally. They they refined them and then they continued to refine them uh, upwards and sort of into the next phase of sort of a red scare in the '60s and '70s as well. And and you know, I know you've done books on the you know on on repression in the '60s and '70s. And do you see like a through line towards the techniques of repression used by the FBI from the '30s to the '50s up into the ones against the Maoist groups in the '60s and '70s? Oh, for sure. You know, I mean, it's you know, it's uh, kind of the principle of evolution, right? Favorable characteristics tend to get passed along, and I think mm-hmm. tried and true methods. Uh, tend to get passed along. I mean, if you go on the FBI's website today and you look at their definition of informants, I mean, they still extol uh, the use and the need of informants. I mean, this situation today, I know this isn't exactly your question about the 60s and 70s, but uh, well, whatever. Um, I, th- I think it's relevant. Um, uh, the landscape today is different. I mean, technology has... Uh, qualitatively transform certain aspects. I mean, certain things can be done technologically that used to involve what they call human intelligence. So I think it would be, you know, naive in the extreme to think, well, this is how they did it then, this is how they're doing it now. I mean, there's just an abundance of stuff at the fingertips that, you know, I mean, if, if I were out there politically active and street demonstrations not something i do so much i would really want to be mindful of 
of making myself vulnerable in ways. Um, but the other thing is tried and true methods do hold. And informants, uh, knowing where people live, uh, compromising people, all those things work. Um, and it's, it's kind of, actually, you know, it was funny. It was a backhanded compliment and also uh, gave me pause that the Naval War College has my second book posted, you know, in their library. So I guess they, hmm. they feel people should read that book. So uh, that says to me that, yeah, and I read James Comey's book, right? And, and I was actually oh, struck by the... brave man. Yeah, well, I was struck by the fact that Comey actually doesn't understand the agency he headed. I mean, he has these really trite uh, characterizations of Hoover's FBI, which, mm. you know, whoever's saying Hoover's FBI, uh, I tend to think they're probably not looking at the, the FBI that Hoover led. You know, I mean, mm. he, was, uh, he was good at his job, but he was actually part of an organization. I mean, sure, there was a certain cult to the individual and stuff, but the people around him were very loyal and they were very sophisticated. Um, and yeah, a lot of this stuff did get put into the 60s and 70s and you know, it had a very detrimental effect. And I, th I think a lot of these things are going to be challenges for people striving for social justice today to, you know, yeah, I don't, I don't take a side on these things, but I, I really don't want people to be victimized who don't deserve to be victimized um, mm -hmm. from these things. Well, I think like a good kind of a good coda to this is talking about, as you mentioned in the book, lot, there have been lots of books written and lots of studies done internally, externally on why the Communist Party, the United States, which, you know, as you rightly point out, I mean, well, it had after the war, I mean, it had what, like 80, 100,000 members. I mean, it was quite large and was headed towards being quite large, but it pretty much just fell apart through the ensuing decades. And, you know, a, a, a lot of the popular narrative around that, n not incorrectly, is about a lot of the internal politics and dynamics, as well as kind of what happens to the party after, um, you know, Khrushchev's famous speech denouncing Stalinism and, and moving the Soviet Union in a different direction, um, and the split that causes in the CP uh, USA. But you know, I, I think the the important intervention of your work is is um, you know really documenting all the ways in which the bureau shaped a lot of these internal things and exploited them, as we were saying. And uh, I think it's in a previous book where you detail some of this, uh, where you talk. I mean, I think you talk about how uh, f you know. Forgive me if I'm getting this incorrect, but. Um, you know, they would create even like shadow parties, like fronts, basically, or like fake uh, ML organizations in order to disrupt kind of internal dynamics within the party. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct, because they'd actually studied this stuff so clearly mm -hmm. when the, the Soviet Union and China had a falling out. They created right, a, right, right. a phony Maoist group to try to disrupt the pro-Soviet group. They said, oh, you've got secret Maoists in your group, and people were <laughs> kicked out. But I wanted to step back because one of the things, one of the discoveries is, you know, the Communist Party, on the one hand, I think when Khrushchev denounced Stalin, that was the end of it. Right. Um, people had hung on, and they justified everything, but then suddenly you had Khrushchev admitting, look, 
A lot of people were killed who shouldn't have been killed. A lot of people were put in prison who shouldn't have been put in prison. There was a purge of the military at the cusp of World War II, and that shouldn't have happened. I mean, and this was just basically saying, you know, ripping the veil off the Wizard of Oz and it disenchanted, split the party to smithereens. But up to that point, they had held it together, mm. even though they went from 80,000 probably to 20,000. But in that time, they had their top leadership put in prison for five yeah. years under the Smith Act. And then they had succeeding waves of these Smith Act trials of their secondary leadership being put in prison. I mean, it was like an assault unlike nothing that's ever happened in this country. I mean, I make a point. I, I mean, I, I spent, I lived in New York during, during Rudy Giuliani's uh, tenure. And Giuliani, at one point, he talked about these preemptive arrests he made and some of the audacious things he did. And he says, well, you know, we do these things and we'll sort it out later. Yeah. Um, and it occurred to me, you know, in the context of uh, Donald Trump, you know, the media is all like, oh, he's destroying norms. Uh -huh. And you know, it's kind of a one thing they're talking about something else. But on another level, it occurred to me that the, the norms in U.S. society, the Bill of Rights, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, all these, you know, sacred rights are norms that routinely get upended and put aside to the yes. point where the norm is the norms get put aside. So we live under this illusion of, of a certain level of freedom. And I think what you saw with the Communist Party, which is not, you know, organizing for armed insurrection, it's organizing to be basically like a Euro-Communist Party right. in the uh, 50s. Proto-Euro-Communist. Yeah, 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 exactly, because it's not Europe, right? Yeah. Um, well, and they'd, fo they'd follow the line, of course, of Fosterite deviationism that long, and then, of course, that led them. To yeah, exactly. Even if they rejected it. But they, you know, they weren't out to overthrow the government. They weren't yeah, revolutionary, exactly. but yet they were totally brought to heel. I mean, they were made illegal technically, but it didn't really hold because it contradicted an earlier law. Mm -hmm. But they were de facto illegal. Um, and they could operate somewhat publicly, and they sent a huge swath of their organization underground. Uh, but all of this was done without, I think we were talking about this earlier, fascism was never declared. Mm, it was yeah. never Hitlerite fascism, which is the, the specter that they raised up. But it was repression. And, you know, I make the point, it's repression in a country that's very wealthy and doesn't need to systematically execute people on the street in order to maintain political control. Some countries do need to do that. Dominican Republic under Trujillo, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe the United States will descend down to that at some point, you know, and there is certainly political violence, but they didn't need to operate quite on that level. But repression is repression uh, in, the, in terms of what it's attempting to accomplish, which is to protect the status quo and, and you know, minimize, weaken or neutralize anything that would attempt to uh, thwart that. Yeah, I want to pinpoint something you just said about, you know, it never being like Hitlerized or it never being, you know, fascism never coming to America. And I think what you said about how norms, you know, these kind of norms that we cling to is that the thing is, you know, in, in, that you point out is that all of these norms as we know them now are historically contingent, right? And have been shaped and changed. And yet we examine, we don't, we don't look at them in that way, right? We don't have this sort of like kind of 
um, more robust or larger scale understanding of them and how have they've shifted. And so we just see this kind of like one static point in the present of what that norm is, right? And it being violated. But the thing that gets me, and you point out, I think you point this out very well in the book, is that, you know, whatever it was that members in the party were always concerned with this kind of like outside you know, you know, I don't mean to be glib, but the specter of like fascism coming, right? Or, you know, as the point that you make with the example of the white chauvinism, this, this kind of intervening um, uh, force that was coming that had to be eradicated before that we had to prepare for before, when the complete and total demise of the party and, you know, the repression that you document so clearly was all happening, like at the very moment, Right. And they, and not only was it happening, you know, as they, you know, as they were just, you know, as they existed and in the kind of uh, context of just that at that point, contemporary America, but also like their internal dynamic, they weren't even focusing on the internal dynamics that were giving rise to opportunities to then be exploited by the U.S. Mm -hmm. government. And so it's like, you know, they were focusing on these kind of like, you know, hysterical specters fantastical ideas of what the repression would look like that they didn't even see what was even what social forces they were conjuring up within their own ranks that then led to the you know incredible repression that they faced from the u.s government and i think that's such an interesting lesson um or or just an interesting way to look at the dynamics of the party and kind of the short-sightedness right um and i think we still see some of that today Oh, for sure. And, you know, it's, look, it's a, it's a, forget about, you know, well, I, I don't want to get too controversial, but I don't think it's a no, deep No, do it, do it, do it, do yeah, it. Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't see it so much as a deep state, as a, as a state, or in, in the old Marxist term, there's a superstructure. It's like what got the Communist Party was, uh, okay, there's the FBI, there's mm. Congress, there's these independent right-wing forces who, you know, there's an abundance. There's probably many more of them now than there were. And then there's the media. Uh, mm. And Paul Simon has this line from his Cape Man album, an underappreciated album. It's like, the newspapers and TV would kill you if they could. Afraid to leave the projects To cross into another neighborhood The newspapers and the TV I mean, it's, you know, if the media turns its head, turns its light on you, forget about it. I don't know how you can withstand it. You know, if they, they nail you for three days, you know, how are you going to stand up to that? So there's all these things working together. You don't need to put people in Dachau uh, right. in that way. Or maybe you do. I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, inclined toward, you know, predestination on anything, but you know, it's look. I think some things can be learned from looking what happened in in Germany. You know, probably the biggest lesson in Germany was the failure of the social democrats and communists to yep. be able to stand <laughs> against Hitler. You know, it's not just mm -hmm. Hitler's well. wrath uh, and, and willingness to use violence, but you know, so it's a political question, right? But but the repression in the United States is very extreme. I mean, the Black Panthers, there's been a lot of talk about the counterintelligence program oh, at yeah. the Panthers, but they were also vilified in the media. 
you know, they wanted to break unity with the group. Part of the program of COINTELPRO was to, to make sure intellectuals don't support you, to make sure people in the churches, you know, think you are a pariah. So, you know, there is, it's, a, I guess you have to be holistic when you look at, mm. uh, at, at what you're doing. And, and if, at, you know, if you're a political force, you have to look at the big picture of what's coming at you. And it's not just a Reichstag fire and then the, uh, you know, the, the orders, the laws being passed, mm-hmm. and, you know, that allows you to imprison everybody all at once. I mean, it could happen, sure. The uh, one, one point I wanted to make, too, is like, you know, like, if you're a Muslim from how many countries now, you can't oh, yeah. come to the United States. What the hell is that all about? Exactly. You know, yeah. I mean, there's no, I mean, but it's, 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 it's the law right now. And it's, you know, it's rather outrageous, but it's emblematic of, you know, the relative nature of the freedoms uh, that exist here. Yeah, I was actually reading last night at around three in the morning about this college professor from Florida, a uh, Muslim guy from uh, from Palestine, who was a Palestinian nationalist and it actually campaigned for Bush in 2000 because Bush had said something about the you no know, collection of secret evidence against, you know, his brother had been, you know, put in prison on some trumped up charges. And so he campaigned for Bush because he thought Bush would be better for Muslims, which... Well, I'm not sure that that anyone would have been very good for Muslims in that period, but uh, but he was actually thrown in prison after giving an interview on Bill O'Reilly's show, where O'Reilly confronted him with some statements he'd made about Israel, and you know, within a couple of years, uh, you know, he's hit with I don't think it was RICO charges, but it was racketeering charges uh, about uh, raising money for for groups in Palestine, and I, and I believe he's. Out of prison now, he's in Turkey. But I mean, it just goes to show, like they refine, they 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 really began crafting these methods in in well, even before your book starts, you know, really in the twenties and stuff like that. Especially using deportation as a tool. I mean, that's still really used as a, as a weapon by the government today. Yeah, that's and of number course, one on the list. You know, they exactly. Got a list, yeah. yeah. Are you yeah, an American? And, Are you an American? Oh, that's easy. Get mm-hmm. out of here. And and that was you know back then that was that was kind of easier to use against the left because everyone was from like Hungary and shit. Not to listen. I know I've said the word hung. I love Hungarians. Rashida, if you're listening to us, love you, baby. But uh, but you know like everyone, like, there was a lot more foreigners uh, sort of on the left back then. Uh, there is a there was a there was a huge amount of 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 people who had left Europe because of their political beliefs. And had been able to sort of reconstitute themselves here, often in, in sort of language-based federations in the Social Democratic Party. Uh, and and but today, you know, the the political landscape has changed. And certainly, I mean, we 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 look at it used as a tool, like in those uh, in some of those meat plants that that were at sort of the the these subject of these stories at the beginning of COVID uh, and before COVID. You know, when when workers would complain about not getting paid or stuff like that the bosses would call ICE and get him kicked out. And, you know, those are people being deported essentially for standing up for their rights uh, uh, regarding their labor. And so, I mean, this is still a, you know, a really effective tool because there's almost no defense against it. I mean, they can get you out if they want to. But Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. Do you have any final, final top-level thoughts or parting wisdom for our, uh, our, our, our noble listeners? No, but I, I do hope the book is of some value. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I wrote it because it's just a fascinating topic. And I, I think uh, Repeater oh, yeah. Books put up a playlist that I, I had. I mean, it, it's too bad, uh, you know, in some of these forums, you can't actually get the music out there because uh, yeah. 
that's really what animates uh, things. And it's also kind of what makes life worth living, you know. I think Kurt Vonnegut once said, oh, the Beatles make me happy to be alive, right? You know, yeah. <laughs> music, music is fundamentally important. But I think there's a lot in the book. There's a lot of lessons, some of which I'm probably haven't absorbed myself, you know, but it was, mm-hmm. uh, it was a good project to try to lay this down and kind of have it there for people to hopefully have some use of. I actually, I, I, to little, little listener tip here, uh, during the entire time that I was reading this book, I read it on my phone, which is not something I usually do, but, but, uh, I actually listened to, I think every, not every, but almost every Weaver's album, uh, and, and, and a bunch of uh, Woody Guthrie's album, uh, uh, about Sacco and Vanzetti. It's a whole album kind of covers, uh, with sort of the lyrics change to be about Sacco and Vanzetti. It great record. And, uh, I listened to that the, basically the whole way through. And that really made sort of the book, uh, I don't know. It, it's good. It's a really good companion to actually listen to the music while you, while you're reading this. I, fantastic book. I, I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, all right, Aaron. Thank you for joining us, and uh, we'll we'll see you at the what is it, the Gas Lamp Cafe? What do they used to call that place? Yeah, I'll, I'll listen. I'll be wearing one of those uh, like kind of half berets, half cabbie hats people used to wear, uh, and and talking in a much heavier Jewish accent than the one I have now. <laughs> I think it's Gaslight, right? Gaslight, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's good talking to both of you. Thanks. Thank you. Unseen, unheard, they lie beneath the ground. Would you know until their leaves are showing that with weeds all your garden will abound? If you close your eyes, stop your ears, hold your tongue, then how can you know? For seeds you cannot see may not be there. Seeds you cannot hear may never grow In January you still got the choice You can cut the weeds before they start to bud If you leave them to grow high They'll silence your voice And in December you may pay with your blood So close your eyes, stop your ears Close your mouth, take it slow Let others take the lead and you bring up the rear And later you can say you didn't know Every day another vulture takes flight There's another danger born every morning I can be a folky. What do you mean? Do you play any instruments? Yeah, I've put out seven records. (laughs) I know, but I kind of forget what you did on them. I thought you just kind of like, you just sang, I thought. I sang on the first, I sang on all of them, but I sang on the first three and then, or yeah, first three. And then, I, no, I I put out six records. I've, I sang on the first three and then I played bass on the last two. And then there's oh, an unreleased, unreleased record with me and, and, uh, and a couple of the, uh, the big boy rockers that, uh, that is, well, I play, I play a couple of instruments on that. None of them very well. You know, if you want to be a folky, you know what you should take up? Mm. I always found this very charming. One of those, like, one-man band situations. You found those charm. I found those incredibly obnoxious. There used well, to be a guy you know, played you- in front of makeout room. Oh, is I don't like that. Girls- I feel like the only yeah. time you, like, encounter them is, like, you know, down a dark subway, uh, you know, 
whole way yeah, meandering yeah. through. And then you see the man and the one, you know, the one man band. And it's probably like two cats sitting on another rat with like mm-hmm. a dog. Well, there used doing to a be juggling act. So I, you're, the thing that Liz is referencing here, you might, you listeners might be like, that is absurd. There's no way that those disparate sorts of animals could come together in perfect peace and harmony. But there was a guy in San Francisco yeah. who had cat sitting on next the rat. to him. Mm-hmm. Or no. rat on the cat on the dog. No. Yeah. Cat on the dog and yeah. a rat on the cat. Yeah. Rat on the cat on the dog. Do you know what happened to him? Oh, no. What? He got run out of town because people thought the animals were drugged. Like people kicked him out of San Francisco. They weren't drugged. I saw those animals. How do you, what do you mean he got kicked out of San Francisco? What? He got excommunicated? Like, what do you people mean? Like, ran what? him There's out no of town. Wall. People ran, I, I don't, I, baby, I don't know. People ran him out of town. That's just like, look it up. Cat, rat, dog guy ran out of San Francisco. It's incredible. You know, it's you know a dog the techies, city. the techies, no shame. No shame. Absolutely. First, no they shame. came for cat, rat, rat, cat, dog guy, and I said mm-hmm. nothing. Yeah, and then, well, I, I actually did, I, I actually raised a pretty big stink over there. <laughs> well, someone has to speak. Who- Cat, rat, dog is the language of the unheard. <laughs> there we go. Said by Angela Davis. <laughs> um, all right, well, let's, uh, let's wrap this up like a nice little Christmas. But you know what's funny? I, not to give a little spoiler alert, but this is true and on Music Week. Is it? Yeah. Oh, yes. I just realized. Mm-hmm. Okay. We, that's right. We are interviewing Kanye motherfucking West on Friday. <laughs> yeah, presidential candidate. He's not really a presidential candidate. He forgot. <laughs> I, do you, I don't think he, he forgot. You know, I think he just never did it. 100% he forgot. Like, he, he was get actually on the ballot tr- anywhere? In like a couple places, I think. But If like, Kanye is in the ballot on your state, you have a moral duty to vote for Kanye West. 100% this podcast with no equivocation endorses Kanye West. A hundred percent. I mean, it's without a doubt. You see him, that was a pretty weak stream, but did you see him piss on the the Oscar or Grammy? Whatever the music is. Yeah, I don't, I don't look at that kind of thing because I'm not a pervert. Well, okay, well, we'll talk about this after because I'll just show it to you after. I shouldn't have, I guess that's, you probably won't look at it now. But anyways, uh, yeah, I I, I personally will be writing Kanye West in. Yeah, Um, Absolutely. Well, let us uh, let us end this, and so I can go off and work on my beats some more. Oh, great! All right. Well, I'm Liz. <laughs> what if I became a beats guy? <laughs> like, what if I was a guy like Liz? Wait, can you come over? I got to show you my beats. You never know, guys. Like, I knew beats guys. No. Uh, yeah, I see a certain someone here knows a beats guy. Uh, anyways, I'm Bryce, the beats guy, and we are joined by <laughs> other beats guy, Hyung Chomsky, and uh, this is the podcast. Uh, fuck, wait, I always fuck this up. True and on. Yeah, I'm not True a beats guy. True and on. Oh my god, shut up. Okay. We'll see you next time. Bye bye. Beats guy. Jeffrey Epstein.